0: Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer, but since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. Well, if you've ever heard commercials asking if you've been left out of a will or you've seen a high profile courtroom showdown, you've probably realised that often where there's a will, there is a day in court. So, why, despite the inevitability of death and the necessity that we will pass on money, assets, or treasured mementos, are so many of us still so bad at building a watertight will? Monica Ross is here to answer all of my questions. Monica, welcome. Thank you, Amy. Firstly, I just want to find out what is a will and what's an estate, and are they one and the same thing?
1: A will is a document that someone makes to determine how their estate or their assets are dealt with on their death. Your estate can compose lots of different things, really all of the things that you own. There's parts of your property that may not be governed by a will and don't form part of your estate, such as superannuation, but an estate in general terms will be your bank account, your car, your house, your personal belongings, all the bits and bobs you've got. All the big ticket items. Do you have to have a will? No, you don't have to have a will, but if you don't have a will, then in each state and territory we have legislation which is passed by politicians that determines what happens to your estate on your death. And most people I know, in fact, I've never met a person who knows exactly how that legislation works and mm. operates to govern their their assets on their death. So, if you don't choose to have a will, then I would strongly suggest you understand what those rules mean to you so that you know what will happen to your estate on death. And we all work so hard for what we get. Mm. It would be extraordinary just to leave that to legislation <laughs> and not have some control over it.
0: Is it common to see a messiness in your line of work where someone hasn't left a will behind?
1: There are lots of messes in
0: <laughs> in <laughs> wills and estates. Just cleaning up a lot of mess. Uh,
1: cleaning up a lot of mess Some of that mess is because people do a home-made will Mm -hmm. and they don't understand what's involved and what they own and the effect of that on their death. Mm -hmm. Some of the mess is because they don't dispose of all of their estate, they only dispose of part of it. Some of the mess is because they leave really key people out and there might be litigation. If there is no will and there's no dispute about a will, then the intestacy provisions are quite clear as to who may be entitled. What is an intestacy? An intestacy is where someone dies without a will. There's legislation in each state and territory that tells us how someone's estate is dealt with on their death. We can have a complete intestacy where someone has no will, or we can have a partial intestacy where they have a will, but the will doesn't dispose of all their assets. So, the clauses in the will are inadequate to deal with their whole estate. So, the will governs the assets that it specifically deals with, and then we have a partial intestacy for the balance, and that's the legislation again that deals with how that is disposed of. So, if you want to determine what happens to your blood, sweat, and tears during your lifetime, and all the stuff you've acquired through your hard work, I suggest you think carefully about it. And my money is on getting a will. It's not an expensive thing. I mean, I own a eight year old Jeep. No jokes about the ads, right? But <laughs> my point is I could probably do the service on the car. I know how to change oil. I could fill up the brake fluid. I could change a fuel filter, an oil filter. The reality is I don't do it because although the car's probably worth 25 grand, that's a lot of money to me. I'm not prepared to leave that to chance in case I botch it. So, of course, I take my car to a repairer. They charge me some money. A wheel's the same thing. It's a lot of money you to be leaving to chance. And it's not a lot of money to get a will. And by getting a will, you don't have to do it every year, like your car service or your car registration or your tyres or every other year. It's something you can do once and then only really check on every few years or change if there's a substantial change in your personal relationships. So I'm thinking about when I
0: take my car to the mechanic and that sort of cost that I'm looking at, that's often about several hundred dollars. So, using the mechanics of scale, pun intended, what can it cost to do a will?
1: A pretty simple will, which reflects your intentions, might be between $500 and $800, which is less than what it cost me to have four new tyres put on my car last year.
0: Because mm, I have seen, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen, the DIY wheel kits that you can get at news agencies, they're like five or six bucks. Where does that sit in terms of like, if I'm trying to do my car myself, is this trying to do a wheel kit from the news agency? Is this like me trying to change all the you know, in nuts and bolts
1: of my car? It's exactly that, Amy. And honestly, people doing their own homemade will I've never seen a good one. It's <laughs> great for my business. It's great for the legal profession. It's a decision, obviously, that people make. And as long as they understand there may be consequences, expensive financial consequences for their beneficiary, there's a real risk of that. And I'll give you a simple example. I had a lady come to me. She was not my client. I was helping her mum. And she said, oh, I said, have you got your affairs in order? She says, oh yeah, I'm right. I've got a will and I've done it myself. I don't need a lawyer. I thought, (laughs) oh, that's interesting. Mm. <laughs> and then I said, so what's in it? She said, oh, well, it's very simple, my estate. I've just got two properties. I've got two daughters. I'm going to give one property one to one daughter and one property to the other daughter. And I said, right. <laughs> and I said, and, and what do you think is going to happen then? She said, well, you know, the properties are similar in value. Each girl will get the same value. And I said, are you sure about that? And she said, yeah, 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 no problem. <laughs> I said, right, well, how, how are the properties held? Oh, well, my husband and I, it's our home. And I said, oh, so do you own it with your husband as joint tenants? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, the only way that's going through your will is if you know, if your husband dies first. If you die first, there's no house going to that daughter. And I said, and tell me about the other property you own. She said, oh, that's an investment property my husband and I own. And I said, is that as joint tenants or tenants in common? Oh, no, no, no. That one's tenants in common. I said, right. So you're giving your daughter half a house. <laughs> so I said, let's just recap. You think your estate's simple. You've got two houses, one to each daughter. One house, the daughter's going to get either all of it or none of it. The other daughter's going to get half a house. So it really demonstrates how complex, even simple, wishes are in people disposing of their assets. So you ask me, Amy, what do I think about homemade wills? <laughs> Not uh, I think much. I think they're great for the legal profession. I don't think they're good for people to dispose of their estate how they actually wish. How do you make a will valid? A will to be valid in New South Wales must be in writing and witnessed by two independent adult witnesses. There's no other magic to it. There's a few outlier cases where, you know, it was on a phone or on a computer, but they involved lots of expensive litigation and risk coming seconds. So mm. the simplest way, it needs to be a document signed by the testator, witnessed by two adult witnesses.
0: Can't be in the notes app in your phone? no. How proper a document would it have to look? So say if I just have like a back of a napkin and I write it down and I get two of my friends to witness it and I'm of sound mind and there's no problem, does that count because it is a document witnessed
1: by people? Yes, if you signed it and there were two adult witnesses that signed it, it meets the definition of a document, whether it's a napkin or a piece of A4 Reflex paper, it's still a document.
0: Might just not be a very nice-looking will, a very good will. I wouldn't get marked well for it. It wouldn't be like a 10 out of 10 will.
1: No, and you wouldn't want to get it wet (laughs) because we all know what happens with a wet napkin. (laughs) Where should I keep a will? Ordinarily, you'd keep a will where it's going to be safe and not going to be disposed of by one of your beneficiaries who's not very happy with the contents. Ordinarily, if you get a solicitor to do a will, you would keep it in their safe custody. I've never met a solicitor who charges for that service. And that way, you know where the original is because when you die, if the original is traced into your hands as the willmaker and it cannot be located, then by law, you have presumed to have revoked your will. So it's really important. It is kept in a very safe place. How many people should I tell where my will is? I would only tell the person who you've um, nominated as as the executor, that you've made a will and where the original is kept. I wouldn't tell them necessarily what was in it, but I would certainly say to whoever your loved ones are or the executor, I would tell them that you've done a will and I would tell them where the original is kept.
0: Do you have an age that you think people should start preparing a will and what age generally do people prepare their will? Is there an average?
1: I wouldn't say there's an average. I would say it's more determined by their personal circumstances and their personal relationships and also when they start to own some valuable asset. I mean, I, frankly, I think a $25,000 Jeep is a valuable asset. But mm, you agree. Might, you might not do a, a will for that, but certainly the minute you get a house or you certainly have other assets that are more valuable, that's when you would do it. So that's not an age thing. It's really what you own. You should be considering it as soon as you have assets that you would be upset if you lost. Okay. This is talking to me. <laughs>
0: this is a reminder for me to go and get a will done. What are the types of things that people generally put in their will? And do do you ever see some very bizarre things go in people's wills?
1: As a general proposition, most people's wills are pretty straightforward. They benefit their partner or their children. And a good will is more general so that you know, if I win the lotto tomorrow, I don't need to go and revise my will because my will deals with all of the assets, no matter what I own at date of death. That would be a good will. And although there are some bizarre things I've seen, a lot of them relate to people being quite prescriptive in what they give away and go, well, you know, my cutlery goes to this person and my crockery goes to that person. You know, frankly, most beneficiaries of an estate I deal with aren't necessarily interested in the knick-knacks. Mm. They're more excited by money or property or assets of some value. And you don't have a house but have a fork. Yeah, indeed. Or <laughs> look, just for you, you can have two. <laughs> some people are quite prescriptive about determining that the you know, the age that they inherit and making them be more than like well and truly adults. I've seen a will where they didn't inherit till they were thirty eight years of age. Not sure about the magic in that, but whatever. Yeah, Um, Others, they try and tie some prescriptive requirements like religious beliefs or, you know, marital status or things like that. They're not very common, but you occasionally see some crazy stuff.
0: Oh, so someone might be, you can only have this once you get married. Yeah. Or once you've made me a grandparent, Mm. either in life or in death or something.
1: Wills are interesting, looking at what people have, what they give away, who they give it to, and understanding, most important for the listeners is to understand what you own, how it's owned and how it will be disposed of on your death. Can I leave everything to a pet? You can leave everything in a trust for the benefit of a pet but we all know pets don't have such longevity. They generally have a lifespan of up to 18 years so you could leave money in trust for a pet for sure but you don't see that sort of stuff. What you might find in a, in a common will is, you know, I leave a small sum of money, a few grand for whomever to look after my pet and become the carer of the pet. You do see some stuff like that. What is quite interesting these days is burial methods and how important that is in a will. And some particular people in our community, that's a very important element of a, a will, not so much who gets the money or, you know, the forks, but who is responsible for burial or cremation and, in fact, whether they specify how they're to be disposed of. Do a lot of people state what they would like to happen at their funeral, like if there's music
0: they want to be played or people to be included or maybe left off a guest list or those
1: sorts of things? It's rare you see it, but you sometimes do see some prescriptive rules about that. But more often than not, it's the responsibility left to the executor, which is another reason why you'd want to do a will, because if there's no will, you're not nominating an executor. So you actually don't know necessarily, who will be the person who applies for a grant of letters of administration of your estate and that will be the person responsible for the disposal of your body.
0: Mm. So, just to be clear, so an executor is, is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's the person who, who's entrusted with carrying out your wishes after you die? Providing you have a will, that is the executor. Okay. The other thing I'm curious about is when we're talking about the types of things that people might put in their will, is there anything that you blanket cannot put in a will?
1: You can only put things in in a will that are capable of being done. Mm. Quite a common example is people might say, oh, I give my superannuation to such and such, but your will is not effective in you providing for your superannuation unless you direct your superannuation to your estate, which actually requires you actively getting a binding death benefit nomination and completing it and lodging it with your superannuation trustees and doing it validly. If I did not have a binding death benefit nomination on my superannuation... And it was a retail fund, and I put a clause in my will saying I give my superannuation to Amy. Then it's very nice of you. That would not be effective because my superannuation will never form part of my estate. Mm. So it's, it
0: sounds a lot like what you were talking about at the start about the the woman who had the two houses. That it's not just as simple as just putting something down. Like there are steps that have to be taken, which I imagine is in your line of work. Why you're saying, please come to a lawyer. We can help you navigate all of these processes and these steps that have to happen before I just, you know, write it on a napkin to make it all official. Exactly. I wanted to ask, how frequently can you or should you change a will? I know you mentioned a bit before about making sure that it's something that will outlast your death, but do you often in your line of work see people frequently make amendments to their will?
1: A good will shouldn't require frequent amending. A good will should last until the person's personal circumstances substantially change my will i did it again last year my earlier version which was actually still quite okay was 27 years ago wow
0: so it, you're very it, good at what
1: you do so you
0: can return back more than 20 years and I'm like yep still good
1: <laughs> maybe but you know we we work on the basis if if it's not broken don't fix it so that's what the comment i was making you don't need to run off and do this every year you could run off and do it every year you could make a will as frequently as you like mm-hmm. But you shouldn't need to. A good will, you should need to only update if there's a significant change in your personal circumstances or there's a class of asset that needs to really careful consideration. So
0: in terms of a change in personal circumstance, and I imagine that there are people who have an automatic claim to your estate, I am think maybe partners or, or children, are these people who would automatically be able to, if you did leave them out of a will, would they be able to say, hey, come on, where's my share here?
1: Every state and territory has their own succession legislation. New South Wales, we have a succession act and that governs who can bring a claim on an estate. There are categories of people who can bring on a claim on an estate, but it's not automatic that they would get something. The courts and the judgments are littered with unsuccessful applicants as well as successful applicants. There are lots of reasons why someone may leave someone out of a will and sometimes those reasons are cogent and they pass the litigation test and they they may be the subject of litigation and they ultimately pass, but it's going to cost a lot of money Mm -hmm. um, to defend claims and prosecute claims and leaving someone out is a brave decision in my view. A better course would be to give them something enough that they may not leap over the hurdle that the court thinks that that's inadequate or not adequate and proper provision. Having said that, I don't encourage people to leave people out because I don't want to encourage a litigation environment because that really punishes the beneficiaries in the form of the costs of litigation, which are not insignificant. But ultimately, it's the client's choice. What would be a good reason to leave someone out of a will? Typically, the reasons are personal and they relate to the nature and extent of the relationship something that's occurred within the relationship. You know, we all, you know, see people who have a breakdown in their relationship for lots of different reasons and they may feel that that person's not close enough to them. Of course, I always remind them, well, that's the last two years. What about the 36 years before that? You have to look at the entire relationship, not just one little photographic moment of the relationship. The fight you had with them last week. Indeed. And the other reason might be that they are terribly wealthy and there are other people who aren't so wealthy and they may want to make a real difference in someone's life. If I wanted to leave,
0: say, all of my money hypothetically to a cat charity, would my husband or my kids be automatically able to challenge that? Yes. Okay. Why? Because I'm not wealthy or you could say, why did she leave all of her money to this cat charity?
1: Well, On the one hand, the courts enforce the testator's testamentary intentions, so their wishes, so they would give enormous weight to the will. On the other hand, if your partner and your children have needs, they are the natural persons who would make a claim on your bounty Mm. and the court would look at their financial circumstances and the nature of your relationship with them and they're likely to have a successful claim. That may mean the cat charity get a lot less, Mm. may mean the cat charity get nothing, but there's plenty of cases like that your cat charity example, Mm. Um, and most of them, the cat charities have uh, taken a haircut on what they (laughs) have in the estate. Listening to you, a lot of this makes me think about
0: the importance of having these conversations, and a lot of us don't like to have conversations about dying and what happens when we die and those sorts of things how much of a difference can it make if you sat down with your loved ones? And say, even in an example, like you wanted to, being serious, you wanted to leave some money to a charity or something like that. Do you see cases where having those conversations before death can make a difference in how the estate is administered because there's no surprises for people once someone dies?
1: They do have a great calming influence on and and reduce litigation on all parties involved. And it's always good to have this conversation with your family members, whether they're in the will or out of the will in an appropriate circumstance. I don't advocate you saying to your partner, oh, you're in my will or some friend or charity because what if you change your mind? What if you change your will? Then all you're doing is leading to disappointment and you are entitled to change your will. So you know, we're on the merry-go-round. It's only when the merry-go-round stops and that's the will when it stops. that That's the will that applies to your estate. So you need to be careful telling too many people they're on the merry-go-round when you've kicked them all off years earlier. <laughs> so <laughs> Show's over, guys. Carnival's over. Exactly. You know, everyone to the exits, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know... On the one hand, it's a good, sensible conversation with your very close relatives. If there's some randos in there, I wouldn't be telling them.
0: <laughs> Leave the randos out. Actually, speaking of randos, can anyone challenge a will? I'm thinking like a neighbour or a colleague or someone you met once or twice.
1: Look, there's lots of different challenges to a will. There's a challenge to the will because you've, you haven't... you have Adequate provision hasn't been made to you or you've been left out and it's a family provision claim. You could have a challenge because there's a question about whether the willmaker had capacity, whether the will was properly executed, and whether the willmaker knew and approved the contents of the will. But you can also have a challenge in equity on a will. And there's recent cases where a neighbour did bring a challenge where they asserted that the neighbour had made a promise to them in certain circumstances that she would leave her estate to them. The entire estate? The entire estate. Wow, that's a good neighbour and that but they were good neighbors they looked after her she wanted to stay in her home instead of going to a nursing home she had no other relatives who could let her live at home and look after her they helped with maintenance of her property so she made a promise to them mm-hmm. and they honored the promise but then she made a will in terms where her estate went to her brother and her sister and so the neighbors did bring a claim successfully mm-hmm. and they did as a result of the litigation both of the neighbours' houses were left to them. And it's an unusual case. It's a rare situation. It wouldn't be some rando where you, you know, you made a promise as you walked by someone on the street and said, Mate, have you got a light? I'll promise you a cigarette. It's not that <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. It's a long standing promise and the people have to act on it to their detriment. So there's lots of unique situations, but it is actually possible. Have you seen someone make a
0: brazen challenge that hasn't been successful? There's been
1: lots of ways and challenges that have not been successful and there's lots of reasons why they might not have been successful and most of those challenges are because they don't have a need for the claim on the estate or the estate is quite small and, I mean, it's a bit like Oliver with the soup bowl. Please, sir, can I have some more? Maybe there's no soup left or all the, all the soup bowl's empty. You know, there's lots of reasons why the courts reject these claims. If I've got concerns that a sibling
0: or someone else is trying to manipulate my parents or someone into changing their will and if someone does suspect that elder abuse or manipulation is happening, what's the first step in trying to address that?
1: The first step is seeking professional advice on what to do because we see that happen in multiple different ways. We see that there's often a power of attorney involved and we see that one person might have control over finances or an enduring guardianship and have control over who the person sees and what medical care they receive. And so the first step is when a person does their power of attorney and the enduring guardianship to make sure you that it's drafted in such a way that there's lots of checks and balances and make sure that there are, you know, there's oversight over it or there's multiple people who have to work together because you get, it's less common that you see naughtiness happening where there's multiple people involved. So that's the first step. Mm. The second step is if there is actual persuasion or someone is susceptible with declining capacity or in a, a special disadvantage where they've got all their marbles but they just might be quite isolated and alone and elderly and have not mobility to access services, then it's important that that person gets independent advice and they have their own lawyer that's different to the other people involved. And then the next step is to look at their accounts and, and their assets and to see if there has been any anyone sticking their hand in the cookie jar.
0: As a lawyer, do you often encounter situations where you have someone who's trying to interfere in a will and you have to almost be the the adjudicator and make sure that you're with your client and that there's nobody trying to
1: interfere with them? We regularly are confronted with this problem where someone will will their Uh, elderly relative in and say, um, this person, and they try and tell you, this person wants to do a will and they want to do it in my favour. And you go, really? Ah, wow. And then you, of course, separate them out. You won't see the client with anyone else present. You make sure and then you make multiple meetings so that you can can each time check in and make sure that there's nobody trying to coerce them into doing something. And the same with the power of attorney. As medical science improves and we've got longer lives, and we're dying later, people are inheriting at an older age. 30 years ago, we were much younger when we would inherit from our parents. Now we're quite old. We might even be retired when we get our inheritance, Mm. if we get an inheritance. And so people are getting inheritance in so they're not prepared to wait till their elderly relative has passed away. They want to get their hands on it now. So we're seeing a lot more of elder abuse or financial abuse occurring.
0: I remember talking to one lawyer who was telling me about creative ways that people have tried to navigate around saying that someone's fit to make a will. And they had gone to a dentist to get a dentist to write a statement saying that their mum was of sound mind to take, like to do it, even though other doctors who were experts in dementia and, and elder capability were like, no way. But they he just went and got a dentist to do it and say, yeah, 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 she's totally fine. Like she can make, she can make this will decision.
1: Well, capacity is a legal test, not a medical test. So apart from that dentist commenting on her cavities or her her dentures, I'm not sure what value they could have added, but it is a legal test. And, and so you look for multiple sources of information for that. If they're in a nursing home, you talk to the nursing home staff because they're, they're the people who see the person all the time. They know whether they're off with the fairies or not, or what their observations are. You talk to the general practitioner, the treating doctor, you might get them to see a geriatrician to make sure that they're independently assessed by a specialist medical doctor to make sure they've got capacity. And then the solicitor themselves, you ask very probing questions. You don't ask leading questions, you ask open questions so the person has the opportunity to talk because somebody who might be practised with declining capacity is used to just saying yes or no and hoping for the best. By asking really open questions you're inviting a conversation, they have to participate. And that's where you see the gaps in their memory.
0: When you were talking earlier, you made the mention that our lives are very different now than they were, say, 30 years ago. How much of a complication does divorce and remarriage throw into the making of a will process?
1: The complexity in our personal relationships adds to the complexity of will making because you have a delicate balancing exercise between your previous family and children often, and your current family, and that may or may not be children. And so we talk about that as blended families where you might have an ex-partner, a current partner, children from the ex-partner, children from the current partner. They are complex and they are hard because no one has a crystal ball and it's very hard to know exactly what your assets will be on death and how you get that balance right, both taking into account the length of the current relationship the asset pool, the age of the children from each of the relationship and what their needs might be and it is a complex problem and I must say they are the hardest arrangements to do well and clients often struggle with it the most because they want to make provision for the children from their first relationship and they want to make provision for their current partner. There's often a natural conflict between those two groups. It is very tricky.
0: And there's no sort of general rule here about, you know, divorce being finalising of one arrangement and sort of starting again with another family. So, say someone's gotten divorced, is their obligation to their former partner over at that point?
1: If they've done a property settlement with the person as distinct from a divorce, then the courts say yes, their, their financial obligation to that previous partner has been resolved. But that does not resolve necessarily the financial obligation to the have to their children from that relationship. If you have four children, for argument's sake, two from your first relationship and two from your current relationship, they're all your kids. Mm. You really love them the same, don't you? Mm. You want to make provision for them in similar terms, but you also need to then make provision for your current partner and that's where the trickiness comes in. And you also then might want to factor in that maybe the children from the first relationship are much older and more financially secure and they had the benefit of your income during that period of time and the the current children, I assume, are younger and they therefore need maybe some extra support during those years. That's why it's so complex. I'm
0: going to end by asking, after all the complications of humans, something simple, is it possible to have an ironclad will?
1: No. (laughs) It's not, you can't I like have, your honesty. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have an ironclad will. The only way you can really resist claims is by having no assets at date of death and that's a very rare circumstance and having not had any assets for the three years before you passed away in New South Wales and there'd be no dodgy transactions at any period where you gave stuff away. So most wills are challengeable. But you can do a lot of things to resist those challenges or to nip them in the bud by carefully considering who has a claim on your bounty and carefully considering their personal circumstances and the size of the estate and your circumstances and the relationships with these various people. There's lots of things you can do to ward against a claim, but you can't make it um, watertight.
0: So the lessons that I've taken from this are take your car, To a mechanic who knows what they're doing and perhaps talk to a lawyer who knows what they're doing when it comes to making a will.
1: Sounds great, Amy.
0: Monica, thank you so much for informing me about how to do a will. Much appreciated. Thank you. What you heard in today's episode is not intended as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified professional. I'm not even a lawyer, remember? So if you are looking for legal advice based on your individual circumstances, head to lawfullyexplained.com.au and find the solicitor who is right for you. Lawfully Explained is a listener production in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales, hosted by me, Amy Dale. Production by Emily Toccato. Audio production by Mitch Calladine. And executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.